Welcome to the Meet Maastricht podcast. I'm Katrina and together with our resident local Lucy, we will be exploring some of the amazing stories that make Maastricht so special. So sit back, relax and join us as we learn about our favourite Dutch city. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 29 of the Meet Maastricht podcast. This is part two of our borders and belonging discussion. Uh, as with our last episode, we are joined by Yus Minnes with a special appearance from his girlfriend Nina. If you haven't listened to part one, I definitely recommend giving that a listen before you jump right into this one. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy. Let's go to chapter three, <laughs> the Belgian Revolution. So we've had chapter one, the French department. Chapter two, uh, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. And now it is chapter three, the, the, the Bel- Belgian Revolution. Mm. I, I talked to this about uh, Lucy, and she said, I've never heard about Belgian Revolution. <laughs> well, I've got no chance, have I? <laughs> you said, Lucy, I, I've only heard of the Belgians breaking apart from the Netherlands, the Belgische afscheiding. Wasn't it me I told, who told you that in Brussels I found a memorial on a place, a beautiful classical place called the Martyrs Place, that there was a great monument dedicated to the Belgian Revolution, you know, and that and that when I saw that quite a few years ago by now, I was I was surprised to see it called that. I'm not sure now whether it said revolution or liberation, you know, that it was that it was an uprising to free themselves from an oppressive regime. So a bevredingsoorlog, a war to liberate yourself. Yeah, that that you could equate that to a revolution. Uh, anyway, what this illustrates is that depending on uh, from which side you look at a historical phenomenon, depending on, on the message you believe in, you will have uh, different ways of calling it. Right. Yeah. So is the Belgian Revolution called that by Belgian people or by people in Maastricht? Well, I have to, I have to ask a, a, a very important question. When? Oh. Mm. When it when it first oh will be f- when it first happened, which I don't know when that is. <laughs> so the Belgian Revolution uh, happened in 1830. There was an opera in Brussels mm. uh, that was about revolutions and about bringing down the tyrant. After this opera, the people uh, went on the streets and started shouting for revolution and started uh, chanting songs from the opera. And um, this spark really ignited the Belgian Revolution, which was a kind of a velvet revolution in the sense of the Dutch king, so William I, did not want it. His son did not want it. But practically everybody else saw that it was inevitable that the Belgians would um, separate themselves from the north. I don't know if you remember the um, civil war in Sudan. A few years ago, there was uh, North Sudan and South Sudan. Now there is North Sudan and South Sudan. And it's the old country of Sudan was separated into two very distinct cultures. Mm. And uh, as an outsider, everybody saw it's inevitable that the South will break free from the North. Mm. Also because there is this ideology behind it. Yeah. Like the, we have this different culture, we have a different language, we have a different way of life. But the Belgians had always governed themselves. Mm as part of the Austrian Empire, but still 
they had governed themselves and they did not need uh, the Dutch to tell them what they were doing. Yeah. So I went to school in Belgium. You can have it. <laughs> um, yeah, that shows. <laughs> but still then, um, what's very interesting is that we now separate the, the, the Belgians into Flemish and Walloons, mm. but this, this, not, this did not happen back then. Everyone was called a Brabander. Okay. It was the Brabant Revolution mm. because uh, Brabant was the the, the uh, uh, catalyst of catalyst. Mm -hmm. Yes, catalyst. Yeah. Catalysticos of the uh, um, of the revolution, and and the, the Belgian flag is formed after the uh, heraldic colors of Brabant. Okay. And Flemish and Walloon only came in um, like 1840, 1850, mm. and later. Yeah. So so at this point, Luxembourg is also part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands still. Yes. Did they have? Do they have different feelings about it? They're just sort of tacked on the end. <laughs> Luxembourg was technically part. Uh, do you know what a personal union is? No. A personal union is when the king of one country is also the king of another country, okay. but that country governs itself right. more or less. Okay. It's it's a little like um, a colony. Yeah. And when the Belgian now, let's see now. In 1815, at the Congress of Vienna, there was also erected something that was called the Deutsche Bund. Mm -hmm. No, the Deutsche Zollverein. And Luxembourg was part of the Deutsche Zollverein mm -hmm. as a whole, which means modern-day country Luxembourg and province of Luxembourg mm -hmm. in Belgium. So there's two Luxembourgs. Okay. The country and the province. And the country of Luxembourg, the people speak a German dialect, mm -hmm. Luxembourgish, or Luxembourgish. Yeah. Belgian part of Luxembourg, the people speak French or a Walloon dialect. Okay. And when the peace was signed between Belgium and the Netherlands in 1839, which was the Treaty of London, it's very complicated in case you hadn't <laughs> guessed. Um, in 1839, it was decided that the German-speaking part of Luxembourg would remain part of the Netherlands in form of a personal union. But was also still a part of the Deutsche Zollverein. The Walloon-speaking, so the French-speaking part of Luxembourg, was no longer considered part of the Deutsche Zollverein uh, and was uh, added to Belgium. And instead of this part, uh, so the so the the, the French-speaking part of Luxembourg, the newly created province of Dutch Limburg was added to the Deutsche Zollverein, mm -hmm. which we can still hear in the German anthem, which says, von der Maas bis an der Memel. Ah. So ah. from the Meuse to the Memel. Memel is in the east of Germany. Okay. And uh, Lucy is nodding, no, 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 <laughs> you should put it all wrong. <laughs> Well, we don't we don't change we don't change the Dutch national anthem either, and that's also got lots of 16th century nonsense in it. So yeah. I mean, the Australian national anthem is we only sing the first two verses because the other verses talk about the motherland and all kinds of weird things, and no one knows about those ones. <laughs> They're racist and all kinds of dodgy. So. Yeah. can relate. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing, yes. <laughs> okay, so Luxembourg is complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. So in 1830, <laughs> let's go back to there, 
um, almost all of the Catholics in um, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands joined the Belgian Revolution. Okay. So this this meant that the whole province of Limburg, which is nowadays Dutch and Belgian Limburg, um, joined the Belgian um, nation. Okay. So I believe you are in here now, um, you would have been in Belgium. So only the city of Maastricht remained Dutch. And, and St. Peter. Ah. And St. Peter. Which, which is where Katrina is. <laughs> okay, okay, so Katrina, you're lucky. You're also on Dutch yeah. territory in 18, uh, 1831. No, we're the, not lucky. <laughs> no. So the fortification of uh, Maastricht uh, was was very important, and there was a, a Dutch general here who did not want the city to fall into Belgian hands. And of course, every Maastrichter hated him. <laughs> many, many, many of them still hate him. His grave was erected on the way to the um, MVV stadium, the old MVV stadium, and um, that's, people. That's a soccer club. MVV. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, everybody yeah. knows that, right? You know, they they, they, they are in the first division. So MV MVV is the Maastricht Soccer Club, and we are not getting into that now. <laughs> no, but but when the people went there, they um, always like to piss on this general's grave. Mm. That was um, a cultural thing. <laughs> It was a father, a father to some tradition that was carried on through the generations, even yeah. though I have seen several instances of fathers not being able to explain to their sons at all <laughs> what this pissing in this particular spot was all about. But, you know, that's what happens <laughs> with cultural heritage, too. It can, it can completely lose its original meaning and still be considered of significance, yeah. which yes. is interesting. It's intangible heritage. Yeah. <laughs> well, this. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> back to back to Dibbets. <laughs> yeah. So Dibbets uh, kept Maastricht Dutch. Yes. When the uh, peace was signed, so there was war for I believe nine days. Lucy, am I right? Well, we've got a thing in our historiography that is called the ten-day. Campaign, so maybe there was yeah. war for ten days. Uh, and Maastricht was blockaded by Belgian forces, mm. uh, but it's not very clear how serious we should take this because it had no real economic um, impact. Impact. Thank you, Nina, on the city, but it was still um, unpleasant to say the least. Mm. But if you if you consider Gaza is uh, blockaded for decades now and they are still going strong. Yeah. People anyway. couldn't go there. So um, Maastricht was uh, blocked, uh, but we don't know how serious we should take that. What do you mean by not take it seriously, a a apart from the, from the linguistic uh, <laughs> nonsense. Because if you, you, you uh, if there's a real blockade, then yeah. um, there are economic consequences. Hmm. For instance, uh, factories going bankrupt because there are no longer any goods that can be produced, major emigration from the city, starvation, uh, things like that. And this did not really happen in Maastricht. Um, okay, I see. Yeah. So there, there had there have been some. Well, I don't know how how serious you should take it. Okay. There was uh, this blockade, but 
then again, it was only the north of the city or only the west of the city because there wasn't, as I said, the only people who did not see the inevitability of Belgium breaking apart from the Netherlands mm. were the king and his son. Okay, and so after that blockade, is that what happened? Is that when that happened? That Belgium separated? No, Belgium separated in 1830. Okay. But in 1839, so nine years later, yeah. only the peace was signed and um, the uh, Kingdom of the Netherlands recognized the country of Belgium. And that's also when the borders were okay. um, signed. Redrawn. Redrawn, mm. yeah. So yeah. Um, th this happens a lot. If there's a war of independence, then the country which becomes independent says we've become independent in 1950, but the country of which they have become independent from yeah. will say, no, you have become independent in 1956 because that's when the peace treaty has been drawn. Yeah. And um, this is always very silly to um, have this discussion with people. Yeah. And in the Netherlands, of course, it's it's always, um, for instance, Indonesia. In Indonesia, people will say, we have become independent in 1945. Mm. But in the Netherlands, everybody will say Indonesia became independent in 1949. Because yeah, there was a war. Yeah, and of course, not everybody, but, but okay. um, yeah, it's complicated. Pol political orthodoxy. Mm. Yeah. I was, I was in the cemetery of Maastricht um, this week walking around with people and, and telling them about the place. And, and there is this memorial to, to the war in, in Indonesia, and it, um, it's been sort of gracefully done. Uh, they, they list the Second World War there as going from 1940 to 1950. Yeah, okay, you can do that. I told my guests the whole story anyway. But you know you don't you don't want to have you don't want to have uh, these these conflicts over names in a burial ground that that would be preferable. Anyway, back to uh, the Netherlands, the kingdom of the Netherlands breaking <laughs> apart. Yes. So in 1830, um, all of the uh, province of Limburg became Belgium, mm. except for Maastricht and Saint Peter. Yeah. But then in 1839, the borders were redrawn. And Maastricht had to be Dutch because this was the um, northernmost uh, city where you could cross the Meuse still. And Maastricht had this fortification and it was still very, very important. And there had to be a corridor mm. to Maastricht. And that is exactly what the Dutch province of Limburg is. Okay. It is a corridor to Maastricht. And um, it follows the Meuse up to the city, and then the uh, the Schootsveld, so the the um, the range, the range of the fortification became the border. Mm. So that's about five kilometers because a cannon could reach five kilometers. Okay. And then back to the east, uh, the, the the old borders that became Dutch, mm. and the rest of the province of Limburg became Belgian. So that's why we now have two provinces of Limburg. Okay. It's interesting that some of the borders are so sort of people talking and deciding things and they're sort of willy-nilly-ish. And then some of them are, the cannon can go this far, we'll put it there. Some of them are so practical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this is, this is what diplomacy is very often about. It's extremely practical. Mm. Uh, if you look at a map of the city as it is today, especially the maps where uh, everything on the other side of the border is uh, uh, represented as a grey area, you can you can see this very clearly. How on the western side, the border between uh, the Netherlands and uh, and Belgium is a is a is a funny sort of almost zigzag uh, uh, shape. 
And that is that is because they were measuring exactly from the fortifications ah. what the range of the cannon, plus a few meters extra, because you you wouldn't want those bombs right on the border. Uh, what that was, and that was that was drawn in, ah. and it's yeah, and it's and, you know, and this considering that a very short while after those cannon became obsolete anyway, because they tore down the fortifications, is uh, just one of those ironies that history is full of. Mm. And right. and what what effect did it? have on on the people i mean becoming part of the netherlands and separating from belgium and i i don't know especially for people down here where they're so close to the border did it make a big difference in their lives or was it sort of a formal thing that that didn't really impact them as much as you would think i have spent a few years at the provincial government of limburg and then you can then you can see up close the rather astounding difference after all these decades between the practical life of you know actual people yeah. and and the the reality of politics and administration from the from the meeting hall of the provincial estates so the democratically elected representatives on the provincial level you can see belgium at the same time, every time the the right wing majority in the provincial uh, government is uh, strong, they will do away with everything uh, in the field of transborder cooperation. Yeah, the border is practically on their doorstep, but let's not deal with that. <laughs> you know, in real life, the connections across the border are so to this day are so uh, intense, so manifold, so varied that loads of people will live in a way as if this border doesn't exist. Yeah. This comes with a heavy penalty because the moment you, you can pretend to do that, but you will run smack up against all the rules and regulations that are mm. attached to the border. And I, I, have to, I have had this creeping suspicion for years that in this way, the physical border may have disappeared. Mm. There are longer uh, you know, barriers and soldiers let alone soldiers with weapons. Yeah. You know, all of that has been done away with within the context of the European Union. At the same time, it seems as if these national uh, capitals, often very far removed from these borders, mm. will not take into consideration what life is like in these regions on both sides of the border and keep keep constructing higher and higher walls of, of convoluted yeah. and conflicting bureaucracy regulations yeah. and yes and you saw you saw it uh, uh, especially uh, now in in the in the corona pandemic yeah. when national authorities were choosing different types mm. of measures and and all of a sudden we had conflicts at the border again yeah and only because family members wanted to see each other you know, and yeah. that's so. So that is that is something that 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 has not gone away at all. Yeah. Even though in the post World War Two period, a few generations have actually lived in the illusion that this sort of nonsense might get less. Yeah. But it hasn't. Well, I've and I've said that before that I've noticed it a lot as someone who lives in Saint Peter, very close to the border. It's a 20 minute, half hour walk to the border in Kana, and it's was never visible to us until coronavirus happened and they put a log so cars couldn't go past and they put I, I don't know if they felled a tree they it wasn't an official barricade <laughs> it was a log 
and cones and things but people still rode their bikes and walked but you couldn't park but because people because we do live on the border people were parking their cars on this side and walking to their friends their workplace etc on the other side and i know people if they had to go to germany for work uh like masks would be compulsory everywhere but they weren't here and so i think you're right that coronavirus has really amplified and made that very visible as particularly to me living sort of quite close to the border yeah yeah so it's it, it is it is it is only the latest instance of this well um seemingly paper reality of uh, you know treaties and regulations and laws yeah. conflicts with the with the 3d reality of people's lives and it's 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 something you keep experiencing in in border regions mm. makes life interesting <laughs> but what's what's very funny is the use of money because now, of course, we we all have the the, the euro. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I remember my parents uh, always having three wallets with them. <laughs> yeah. One with uh, Belgian money, mm. uh, francs. One with a Do- uh, Deutsche Marke, and one with guilders. Yeah. And I think it was only from the 50s of the 20th century that it became normal to pay in guilders in this um, wow. region because beforehand it didn't really matter what money you used okay. uh, I remember on the market of Maastricht mostly the, the Friday market you could pay in Belgian money wow. and you could get back Belgian money and people just didn't care at all mm. and that's typical for, for border regions that they don't live on this side of the border on, or on that side of the border but they live really on the border yeah. mm. which means they live in two countries at the same time yeah. And they watch uh, television from two countries, and they uh, get the news from two countries. I know know people from Maastricht who, as they think of the king, think of the Belgian king. Mm. Yeah. So this thing in Dutch, um, nu valt het kwartje, mm. which means now I've got it. <laughs> and in Maastricht, you don't say nu valt het kwartje; you yeah. say nu valt de frank. Now, now the yeah. frank falls, uh-huh. which is the same saying, but we didn't have kwartjes here, so. <laughs> We used the word fun. Yeah, it's sort of like the penny drops, but you wouldn't say penny that drops. because yeah, 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 yeah. you don't have pennies either. <laughs> no, so you, you use another another coin that also drops. Yeah. So at what point did Maastricht start identifying either as itself or as part of the Netherlands? Did that ever happen? or is Because I know in our discussions, yes. we've sort of, I mean, we still, we talk about how Maastricht is in landscape and in a lot of ways more similar to the south than the north so does it identify that way so the the, the big breaking point is 1914 okay with the uh, uh, first world war the germans declared war on um well you know the, the austrians declared war on the serbians and then the russians declared war on the austrians and then the germans declared war on the russians and then the french declared war on the germans that thing <laughs> and then the germans decided they should go through belgium to conquer France mm-hmm. and it was only when uh, the people from Maastricht saw how as a historian you're, you're, um, there's lots of uh, things you are taught and one of these is the so-called rape of Belgium mm. When the people from Maastricht saw the rape of Belgium in the First World War they suddenly saw wow if we were Belgium mm. Then this would have happened to us as well. Okay. So the there's this eyewitness from uh, Vizier, 
which is uh, the city most close to the Belgian city most close to Maastricht, which says that from every when the Germans attacked it, from every house there was a white flag, mm. and from every house there were flames. And when the Meuse, River Meuse turned red from the blood of the people of Liège, mm. that's when the people from Maastricht thought, okay, we're so glad that we are not Belgian right now, yeah. we're so glad we are Dutch. It really was a war that, that started this feeling of mm. Dutch nationality. Okay. And even then there is there's still I think with that the the Belgian sentiment went away but as you as you know the, the the people from Maastricht and the people from Limburg still have this distinct identity from the rest of the Netherlands. Yeah. At at any rate I'm I'm not so sure about this identity stuff. I think I think it is uh it is not it is not a uh, anything factual mm. apart from it being um historical process yeah. so something developing over time i think it's very fluid and it obviously changes and yes. every single person is probably different and <laughs> it is it, it it there there is a there is a, a, a lore attached to it mm. uh, and 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 convictions and preferences yeah. and behavior and loyalties and but that is that is all subjective, yeah. Experience we we choose to share with each other, mm. and and of course that can that can greatly assist in your uh, in your sense of identity. Mm. But I think even on a personal level, identities uh, uh, are in flux over time. Yeah. I, I can I can uh, recognize aspects of myself from uh, you know going back and I can also see uh, how much things have have changed yeah. uh, over the years and and I think for anybody with any kind of self-awareness that would be the case and the same thing applies to groups so it is a, it is an interesting phenomenon to look at mm. uh, but for instance this this way of uh, the, the one term as an example this this habit that we have in Maastricht of self-describing as Burgundian so you know uh, being like the Dukes of Burgundy and the civilization that they that they stood for. Yeah. That 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 is a 20th century invention. Mm. You know, there was a uh, there was a reporter from from Holland, I think, who fell in love with Maastricht and stayed here <coughs> for most of his life, which quite a few people who were not born and raised here do, you know, and have done for decades, and they're quite welcome. You know, I, I am not of the school that if you are not born and raised within the first walls, you are not allowed to call yourself a Maastricht. But of course, that's because I'm not born within the first set of walls. Anyway, this sort of thing. I think this is a very good example of, of how identity can be constructed. Mm. I mean, the, 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 factual, the factual connection between this region and the contemporary people in this region with this duchy of Burgundy, which yeah led led to to the reign of the Habsburgs, but you know the duchy in itself lost all significance here uh, when use 16th century, a long <laughs> time ago. So you know it's it is. Let's talk about it as a process of yeah. identification, and an aspect of that are of course the sense of place and the language and uh, the experiences you share. The, the the procession of the sovas and and the hoisting of Morsweef when carnival <laughs> is open you know the language and the songs and the jokes and yeah 
all of that. <laughs> what, what I find very interesting nowadays is that people think they can have only one identity. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. When, yeah. in fact, of course, you can have many, many, many yeah. identities. It really depends on who you're with and what your social role is, what identity you take on yourself. Mm. I think that's something people tend to forget these days, that you can be Dutch and Swedish yeah. and Russian and yeah. Japanese at the same time. Well, I'm sure maybe Nina has, uh, she might probably has more thoughts about it <laughs> because she has different identities. My mother is Australian and my father is Scottish. And so I didn't grow up in Scotland, but that is definitely part of my identity as a person. So I definitely understand. And even and on the minutiae of things, like I grew up on the coast. So I'm like a beachy Australian. Like I didn't come from the bush. And so I, I know that there's sort of, it's nuanced as well, as a bit, as well as being like multiples. and. The word I am thinking about is, is multi-layered. Yeah where it is not so much connected to uh, identities derived from nation-states, which is, you know, since those states are, of course, very much made up, things is always um, um, <laughs> unsure grounds. But, but the layers of, you know, feeling, identifying with Maastricht yeah. and identifying with, uh, the Meuse-Rhine region. I am more at home in Aker than I am in The Hague, where I have lived for 10 years. As a feeling, you know, of course, I know my way around The Hague a lot better than I do around Aker because I have not lived <laughs> in Aker for 10 years. But, you know, as a, as a, when it comes to a sense of, of recognition, you know, just recognizing your surroundings, of, of ha having a grasp of where you are, mm. Aker is much more familiar yeah. As an example, uh, same goes for for many of the Belgian cities. Then, then the Holland cities are to me. They they feel much more alien, even though, you know, it's my country. Uh, I I also strongly identify as a European, and this goes this is this is fed to a large extent. In my case, uh, that is not the case with with quite a few other uh, pro-Europe people, but is fed by by what I know about history and about uh, you know how this how this continent has has fared over the centuries, but also of course experiences of of seeing historical monuments in one part of the continent that were totally recognisable <laughs> to me from another part of the continent. Because there's the same strata of architecture, of significance, of, you know, I, I can read those places. I understand what they mean. Mm. If I would be dropped in a city in India or in China, that wouldn't feel that way. It yeah. would be fascinating, but I wouldn't have a clue. Mm. So that's apart from different nationalities uh, being fused in in an identification process for one person. There's 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 also this aspect of more layers to it, yeah. and the, and the layers point to geographical extensions. Mm. Because of course, with with the internet, we we all become globally <laughs> aware at the very least. So yeah, you know that's the that's the latest addition. Well, we have Nina back with us. <laughs> we were just talking about multi-layered and multiple identities and how they are often layered and particularly in, I mean, I think in Europe where 
I mean, you have multiple European backgrounds. How do you personally sort of identify with and sort of connect those those things? Mm, it's very difficult in my case to say that I identify myself through my cultures mm. because I've never really had this thing, okay, I identify as German or I identify as Dutch or Bulgarian because in Germany, in school, uh, I was always the Dutch girl I okay. uh, and then in the Netherlands with my family, I was always the German, you know, uh, because my mother was a bit looked down on uh, that she went to Germany and all that. So you never really like, okay, where do I belong? Mm. And then especially not in Bulgaria because that part is still in my home but not really in my life so much. So I really started, I, I my identity is not with my the country I grew up in or the uh, culture I had at home. And then it's it's funny that when I come to Maastricht or came to Maastricht two years ago to study here, um, that, that changed a bit because then Maastricht was finally a place where I do feel at home and I do identify with maybe also because it has so many different influences from uh, France and Belgium and uh, Germany. Yeah. Also, maybe for the first time, some place where I really feel at home. Yeah. Um, because there's also, of course, a lot of international people coming here, and through my studies, I meet a lot of other people, and they, some of them, have the same ideas that you know I don't identify myself through, through my my nationalities, yeah. um, but more through who I am as a person. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, she was very relevant to bring Nina. <laughs> it's funny talking about multiple identities when I come from a psychology background. I uh -huh. keep thinking multiple identities. <laughs> that's when you have like a split personality. <laughs> no, 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 nothing, nothing pathological. Not that no, kind no. of multiple identities. <laughs> no, 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 nothing pathological there. Just you know, <laughs> it is creating your own sense of of uh, self. And of belonging, yeah. And um, the way the way you are describing your allegiances, uh, or or in particular the criteria you use to set your allegiance, yeah, makes me very very hopeful that the bad effects of of nationalism uh, might be wearing off in Europe. That would be good. <laughs> but you know, when you look when you look at European decision making uh, at the moment, that is uh, absolutely not the case. Um, when um, the Second World War was over, yeah. the um, mayor of Maastricht had a um, speech in 1945. This was very, I think, very, very um, forwardly of him to speak of two types of Maastricht people mm. who, according to him, uh, guided the city through these, these hard times. And he spoke of Maastrichtenaren van geboorte of van overtuiging. Yep. Which is very beautiful, I think. It's, it's, it says, so Maastricht people, from either from birth or from uh, persuasion. <laughs> yeah. Conviction. Conviction. And I think, if, if, um, I think that that's something people from Maastricht should, should do to persuade others to also <laughs> feel Maastricht. Well, in my experience, they generally need very little persuasion from us. You know, I see so many Maastrichtenere by choice from all over the world. It is just heartwarming. Once in a while, I, I get a little um, embarrassed when I hear people from elsewhere singing the praises of my town. But of course, it does, it does uh, mean I don't have to do it, which is, you know, because you, you look like a chauvinist right away, and I don't 
don't want. <laughs> anyway. I do. I think we've been chewing ears off for long <laughs> enough. What do you think? Have we have we have we covered more or less the themes we we thought we should address, or is there anything left that we definitely should look at? Yeah, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> That's the next step, Hughes. We will we will be having live broadcasts, and people can ask questions. Uh, anyway, thanks uh, thanks a lot again. Yeah, it was it was nice. Yeah, thanks to you and and Nina <laughs> for joining the Meat Mastery You're podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, listening. I hope you can be of service uh, the next time as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Meat Mastery podcast. To keep up to date with all our content and events, make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at at Meat Maastricht and on Facebook at Come Meet Maastricht. If you love our podcast and would like to see some amazing archival images as you listen, don't forget to subscribe to the Meat Maastricht YouTube channel. If you love what we do and would like to support the Meat Maastricht team, you can also donate through PayPal via our website meatmaastricht.eu. Meat Maastricht is definitely a labour of love and all of the revenue we make through our tours and events currently goes towards administration costs. With your help, we would love to be able to give back a little something to the team so we can all keep bringing you our favourite stories and showing you our favourite places in Maastricht. Thanks again and tune in next time to learn more about our beautiful city. Tot ziens.